So, um, you hear me okay? It's pretty close. It's right here. <laughs> I don't know. And mercy. So, um, can you hear? I. Yeah, it's okay? Okay, we'll do our best. And um, I'd like to just start with a reading from Patrick Overton. It says, When I come to the edge of all the light that I know, and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen. That I will find something to stand upon, or I will be taught to fly. When I come to the edge of all that I know and I step out into the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen, that I will find some firm ground to stand upon or I will be taught to fly. It's a beautiful way of trusting the unknown, trusting what's unfolding. So I want to thank you for your practice, another full day of practice, and you might feel a little bit different than you did on the first day. Just before, um, you know, this last sit, just listening to those crickets, it's just like such a beautiful melody. The simple things of life, you know, the simple things. Some years ago, I was listening on NPR, and evidently somewhere out in the Midwest, there's a um, children's toy museum, and they were commemorating on this one day, it was a story about the stick. And they were like honoring the stick. <laughs> and you know, like the stick has been around for thousands of years. It's such a great, you know, the key, you don't need like these gadgets like a stick and sand and water, a tree, you know, the natural world. So here we are in this incredible place in this natural world. So nourishing. Yeah, I love it. They commemorated the stick. It finally got its due place. This morning, uh, someone asked about, well, can you add parts? Uh, can you make a new list to the 32? And so it reminded me of a... Um, there's a poet in Santa Cruz. Her name is Wendy Yen, and she sits at the Zen Center. And when she heard about this 32 parts of the body, I think she was inspired to write her own list. So I'm going to read it to you. It's called the 110 functions of the body. So you ready? It's kind of like a wrap. <laughs> Inhaling, exhaling, smelling, coughing, sniffing, sneezing, hungering, thirsting, licking, sucking, tasting, biting, chewing, salivating, spitting, lubricating, swallowing, belching, hiccuping, vomiting, transporting, digesting, selecting, absorbing, storing, burning, building, copying, creating, destroying, cramping, flatulating, defecating, pumping, distributing, filtering, excreting, holding, urinating, listening, seeing, blinking, dilating, crying, speaking, humming, singing, screaming, whispering, smiling, frowning, laughing, upholding, anchoring, proprioceptive, sitting, standing, balancing, walking, running, jumping, dancing, hugging, tensing, relaxing, contracting, stretching, trembling, enclosing, excluding, warming, shivering, cooling, sweating, 
itching, scratching, shedding, moving, touching, feeling, engorging, climaxing, sleeping, snoring, dreaming, waking, menstruating, conceiving, bearing, birthing, suckling, growing, fatiguing, breaking, aching, ailing, paining, fevering, replenishing, cleansing, hosting, engulfing, killing, collecting, repairing, clotting, blocking, swelling, dying, decaying. Quite a list. The body, this fathom-long body. So I want to acknowledge um, everyone's courage to, to be here. To me, this working on ourselves and our hearts is some of the most noblest works of the world and also some of the most difficult. The Buddha once alleged that it's easier to conquer a thousand soldiers in battle than it is to tame one's mind. And so I bow to you, being here, turning in, turning in, learning to sit and to be with our hearts, our pain, our joys, our sorrows. I feel this practice um, is a quality of uh, intimacy, and I love when you slow down that word intimacy, for it begins to say, into me I see. And that's what we're doing here. Into me I'm seeing more clearly what's here. It's said that the shamans of old, that they, have, they travel with the people that they work with to hells and back, and when asked how do they know how to do this, it's because they have traveled so deeply into their own hells and also found their ways back. So we're learning to stay with ourselves, to investigate our shame. I was very moved with Christiana's um, talk last night about shame, the rage. And here we are sitting with ourselves and sitting with this body. And as we've been saying, this body practice is incredibly personal and incredibly impersonal. And on the personal side, of course, we're sitting with the stories that we have experienced and lived with, identify with, and perhaps at times we tell ourselves over and over again and again these stories. And in our practice, we're learning to turn into them. Some ways, meditation is like, um, particularly insight, mindfulness meditation is like getting a shot of truth serum and we walk into a hall of mirrors and it stars me, myself, and I. Ay ay ay. We see the good, the bad, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. It's so ironic because if you look around here, it, it's a very pastoral and very beautiful place, Spirit Rock. So it's pastoral on one hand, but sitting inside, you know it's sometimes the view is not quite pastoral. <laughs> sitting with our shame, sitting with our fear, sitting with our pain, with our grief, our sadness. At one point in my life, I lived in a Buddhist monastery for many years, and I used to call the, I used to give the, the monastery nickname, I called it the shit accelerator, because um, <laughs> the sitting with ourselves is not for the faint of heart. 
And, uh, you know, there's an idea of romantic, you know, redwood forest, beautiful things. But, you know, come and, come and stay here for a week or two and, you know. It's turning into ourselves. Rumi says in the guest house, I know many of you have probably heard this poem before, but he says, this being human is a guest house in every moment that can be a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness, a momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house and empty all of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. It may be clearing you for some new delights, the dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door and invite them in. That's a pretty radical invitation. Meet them at the door and invite them in. And this is pretty rare in the world, this inviting them in. And perhaps most of the ways of the world is, is to turn away. There's a very, to me, a very haunting observation by St. Augustine that I'd like to read to you. And it was written in the year 399. That's a long time ago, 399. He says, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge waves of the seas. People wonder at the long courses of the rivers, at the vastness of the ocean and stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Walking right past themselves without ever wondering, and we're really not doing that. But it is kind of a, a foreign thing in the ways of the world to turn in. Cynthia Ocaselli, um, she really, really appreciate what she says here. She says, for a seed, for a seed to achieve its greatest expression, it must come completely undone. The shell cracks open, its insides come out, and everything changes. And to someone who doesn't understand growth, it would look like a complete destruction. It's turning in. And the turning in is fed, perhaps... Uh, it's been for me in my own life is this love of truth, of wanting to know what's here. The truth, in so many ways, has helped to set me more free. And I really want to invite us all to become curious, to investigate whatever it is, from a sadness to a rage, to a joy, to a piece of shame, to get curious, to investigate. The teachings in the Dharma invite us again and again to see for ourselves with our own experience. In Pali, it's ehi pasiko, to see for yourself with your own experience. I love that part of this practice, this invitation for us to use our own investigation to see what makes sense, what is true. Even the Buddha in the Kalama Sutta says, don't believe the teacher because the teacher says so. Don't believe the books because the books say so. Don't believe by hearsay. See for yourself with your own direct experience. 
I love that teaching, that charter of free inquiry, inviting us to see for ourselves. Even anything that we say up here, see for yourself your own experience. You have to you know, take it as this is the way that it is. See for yourself this invitation again and again, this love of truth to see for yourself. And there's another wonderful teaching in the Kalama Sutta that I think also gives some guidance about um, how do we know what's beneficial. Just perhaps uh, in our times and back in the Buddhist times, there was a lot of different paths, a lot of different ways. And someone had asked the Buddha once about, so how do we know what's a beneficial path? And so he says that, that the criterion for what is beneficial is, is a path. And he, he did not say my path, but it says, is this path lessening greed, hatred, and ignorance? Or we could say in its opposite, in a more positive way, is it increasing my sense of, of contentment, sense of open-heartedness, sense of clarity and wisdom? And so if any path we walk upon, if it's, it's lessening that greed, hatred, and ignorance, it's increasing that sense of contentment, open-heartedness, and clarity, we can use that as a criterion to know if this is a good path to follow. But again, this practice of seeing with our own direct experience. I, I love that teaching so much. So I thank you so much for practicing with these 32 parts. And, you know, you, some of you here, I know this is your first retreat or first time, um, you know, you've taken other retreats but never have taken the 32 parts of the body retreat. And, you know, to be very honest, it's very rare to be exposed to these practices and practice them. And so I thank you for coming. And for those of you that feel a real resonance with this practice... Uh, this uh, actually on that handout that has the um, chants of the parts. There's also, if you read in the um, introduction, there's a couple of paragraphs. There's there's a website that's devoted to the 32 parts called 32parts.com, and um, it's all free. And I'm not trying to make a sales pitch here, but just to let you know that that it's a, it actually has a lot of the different information that. Um, you know, we've shared um, the definitions of the parts and there's actually audio um, guidance of doing this practice. And the traditional practice actually takes 33 weeks or eight months. And actually at Insight Santa Cruz, um, where I um, practice and live in Santa Cruz, we've actually, we're starting our 13th year of doing the eight-month, 33-week practice and you know when I first started I didn't know if anybody would show up <laughs> but yeah people do and um, and so you know we it's kind of a zigzaggy of a practice like the first week is head hair body hair nails teeth skin the second week is skin teeth nails body hair head hair the third week is head hair body hair nails teeth skin skin teeth nails body hair head hair so it's zigzagging so it actually takes 33 weeks to do the whole uh, caboodle. So there's actually even instructions on how to do the 33 weeks, if you like. And the methods that we've been teaching you come from the Dharma, from the Buddhist teachings, and this was also taught to me by my teacher, Tungpulu Toya Kabai Seropea, which means the world-peace forest ghost mountain teacher. 
And um, so it's very traditional that we've been doing it in this methodical manner of these learning it verbally, then that sets the tone for knowing it mentally, then knowing the color, the shape, the direction, the location, and so forth. And then, so that's sort of the map of where to go to find the part. And then there's the definitions and the functions that help us to understand what it actually is. But it's much more than just a, a reading of a dictionary. It's more of, as we sense into the body, as you're also experiencing, what does it evoke? And again, it can evoke the sense of the personal stories of our lives, but also the very impersonal aspects. This body's just doing what it does. There's another teaching with the 32 parts, just like there's this called the sevenfold skill in learning. There's the tenfold skill in learning. So it's very kind of interesting, older English language. But but I, I just want to maybe touch upon some of these other aspects because this can apply to our practice. And so at first, it's, it's supporting us to follow the, the body parts in the specific order so that we can develop our concentration, not to go too quickly, not to go too slowly. To help to work with steadying the mind when it's wandering to bring it back. Staying with the practice, penetrating into the true nature of the body. And as this begins to develop, we can begin to do what's called successive leaving. If a particular body part begins to become more compelling, more interesting, it's kind of like gravity where we're just moving deeper and deeper into that, then we can begin to leave out the other parts and really hone in deeply on the part that you are feeling some uh, compellingness towards. This begins to develop deeper concentration, absorption, jhana. You begin to develop the qualities of knowing when you should restrain your mind to help develop the concentration, and you know when to exert. You know when it can be encouraged. Developing the qualities of equanimity and resolve. This can lead to powerful states of deep concentration and ultimately to nibbana. One delights in nibbana. One delights in these balancing enlightenment factors of mindfulness, investigation, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. So this is a very powerful practice in that it has that personal aspect and that impersonal aspect. It also can develop deep stages of absorption and concentration and equally deep insight into the nature of the mind and the body. I really love this practice and I also want to acknowledge it's pretty weird. But maybe that's... We live in Santa Cruz and we actually have a slogan, Keep Santa Cruz Weird. Actually, I remember Mary's um, husband, Russell, he, or maybe it was you that did it, but they, they, on their car they had the, the little bumper sticker that said, keep Santa Cruz weird, but then they turned it upside down. <laughs> so anyways, that was Russell. <laughs> yeah. And I also mentioned about that this practice intersects with the elements in Buddhist psychology, it speaks about that all material phenomena, when we begins to dissolve, dissolves into four primary elements of solidity, 
liquidity, motion, and temperature. And this particular practice of the elements really begins to some ways dissolve the sense of separation. For example, listen. Solidity. The sense of separation begins to dissolve as we begin to reflect upon the solid elements of the body, the teeth, the bones, the hardness, the weight. We begin to also experience the liquidity, the saliva, the perspiration, the blood. Just like there's liquid parts within the body, there's liquid parts in the natural world. The sense of motion of the breath in, the breath out, the movement of digestion, circulation, all aspects of motion found in the body and found in the natural world. And of course, this body that is filled with solids and liquids in motion, there's a sense of uh, temperature that begins to arise in the body. The caloric element, and just like found in the body, is the element of temperature, so too found in the natural world. And in doing these practices, the sense of being separate begins to dissolve. Albert Einstein, known as, a, of course, a great physicist, and I would say a mystic and a wise being, he says, quote-unquote, that separation is an optical delusion of consciousness. This is coming from the place that we're all made of atoms, and these atoms, of course, uh, they come from the exploding stars. Make up the body. Remember one time, uh, Ramana Maharshi, one of the great saints of India in the last century, and he was dying of cancer, and some of his students were evidently saying to him, please don't go, Maharaj, please don't go, and evidently he looked at them in astonishment and said, where am I going? Ain't going anywhere. I would love to be able to fill that when I'm dying. I ain't going anywhere. I'm here. I'm everywhere. So Anne Alexander Bingham, she writes, to know that the atoms of my body will remain and to think of them rising through the roots of a great oak, to live in leaves and branches and twigs, perhaps to feed a crimson peony or a blue iris, or a broccoli, or perhaps these atoms rest on the water that freeze and thaw with the seasons. Some of these atoms might become a bit of a fluff on the wing of a chickadee. To feel the breeze and know the support of air, and some might drift up and up and up into space. Stardust returning from whence it came. It is enough to know that so long as there is a universe, I am a part of it. So long as there is a universe, I am a part of it. And the practice of the elements begin to dissolve that sense of separation. We get in touch with the solids in the body, the liquids, the motion, the temperature, and also the reflection of that they're also found in the natural world and the borders begin to dissolve. 
even just now, just for a few moments, you could experience a little bit of these elements just in the, in the nostrils area. And as you breathe in and breathe out, you might feel there's a slight sense of contact, the touch of the air in the inner nostril, the tip of the nose, the upper lip. That point of contact is the element of solidity. So you can take a few breaths and just feel that point of contact of solidity. Also residing within the nose area, not all the time, but a lot of the time is a, a sense of liquidity, the wateriness of the nose. And so you can begin to get the exp direct experience of liquidity within the nose. Sense of moisture, wetness. And then, of course, there's the element of motion, the breath coming in and going out. And then the element of temperature. You might um, just want to point that as you breathe in, you can feel the temperature of the air. It might feel a little cooler, and then it circulates in this 986 degree um, mind-body organism and as you breathe out that air is a little bit warmer so you have the element of temperature right there I suggest as we experience these elements internally they are found externally in the world the elements. And of course, all of these body parts are made of solids, liquids, motion, and temperature as well. So these practices are pointing to awakening, to perhaps experience beyond our sense of feeling separate. And our practice to awaken is to look, look perhaps at our beliefs about being separate. Our beliefs about looking for happiness and where are they to be found. So we practice the 32 parts and the elements to help support awakening. And again, this awakening is awakening in the dissolving of greed, hatred, and ignorance, or the growth of contentment, open-heartedness, the clarity of the understanding of suffering, its causes, and the path to freedom. For it's said in the Dharma that there's no fire hotter than grasping. There's no ice colder than hatred. There's no fog thicker than ignorance. So I'd like to share with you a little bit of uh, the continuation of that st the story of Siddhartha Gautama after he left the palace. I introduced it um, on the first night. So having left the palace, he began to practice meditation with different meditation teachers of his day. And he was a very 
earnest student and sincere and and um, and a good student and he fairly quickly learned these meditative practices and at the time in northern India the main practices were absorption jhana and pali these are very powerful states of concentration where you become at one with the object become unified producing great levels of tranquility, serenity, calmness, one-pointedness. And Siddhartha Gautama was um, very adept in being able to to develop these states of meditation, so much so that uh, when he would study with a teacher, the teacher would say, you've learned everything that I've learned, and now you can come sit with me and we'll teach others. And Siddhartha realized that, um, yes, he could calm his mind down, but still didn't understand about aging, illness, and death. So he traveled from teacher to teacher and mastered whatever these teachers taught him and still did not understand what is this life. Yes, he could calm himself down, but that understanding wasn't fully there. And then he heard that... um, Perhaps it's through the punishment of the body, self-mortification. Through the punishing of the body, one can awaken. And so he practiced very severely these um, self-mortification practices, one in particular where he decreased his food intake gradually to one grain of rice a day. He kept at it for quite a long time till his body began to ail, becoming malnourished, becoming on the brink of collapsing and most likely dying and him recognizing in a very skeletal way. It says you could put his hand on his belly and feel his tailbone just about. And he began to, he realized that the futility of this punishing of the body and left a small group of ascetics that he was practicing with and began to take in food to nourish his body. He wandered to a tree that he took a resolve that he was going to stay there, that he had been to so many different teachers, so many different teachings, and that it was time for him to see for himself with his own experience, to sit underneath this tree and practice till his skin falls off his body. He took this powerful resolve to just stay here. As he began to take his seat, being mindful of the breath in and out, perhaps his mind uh, wandered off to a memory. So it is said in the teachings of um, remembering when he was a boy and sitting underneath another tree. And the memory was just kind of revealing itself was like one of these incredible, beautiful days temperature was just right and it's just so peaceful and beautiful and so he recalled that memory of the beauty and the peace of the day and then he also recalled remembering that there was some farmers on a pasture not so far that he could see below because he was on a hill tree on the hill 
And he saw the farmers with some oxen and a plow, and they were getting ready to break the soil to begin to turn the soil for some planting. And perhaps because his sensitivity was so heightened, and feeling that oneness in the connection of the world and the beauty of the day, but then seeing that plow blade going into the soil and almost sensing and hearing and feeling the cries of the worms in pain. And it was his juxtaposition of the beauty of this world and the pain of this world. And so it said that he began to come back to his breath and being mindful of in and out. And, and evidently, something shifted in his attention. Again, what was prevalent in the meditation practices was absorption, to become at one with the object, perhaps because of this awareness of the fragility of life, the preciousness of life, he developed the concentration, but instead of becoming at one with it, he began to be aware how it changed, penetrating into this mark of impermanence. And this gave rise to deep understandings, realizations about life. These became known as what's called the Four Noble Truths, but we could really say also they're just really profound realizations about life. And the first was is the real sobering and humbling and deep recognition that there is indeed suffering or pain or dissatisfactoriness. In our English language, we have a lot of different words for this. There's anguish, anxiety, affliction, dissatisfaction, discomfort, discontentment, frustration, misery, sorrow, stress, suffering. It goes on. I think we all, we all know about that. But it was a powerful realization for Siddhartha to begin to recognize, indeed, there is suffering. Yes, there also is the joys of the world, not to negate them, but there also is the sense of suffering. Then, again, what brought him on to this path was the recognition that there's aging, there's illness, there's death that none of us can escape from. So there's this sobering recognition of suffering in life, dissatisfactoriness in life. And then he began to turn his attention towards causes. And what arose within him was a realization that the deepest cause is ignorance, not seeing clearly, not understanding what's really here. My teacher, Tampulucero, used to say that the midnight is dark and the new moon is dark, the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is ignorance unawareness, not understanding. And it's through the understanding that we can begin to break the cycle. He used to say, if you know, it will break. If you don't know, you go around and around and around. This is actually the short version of dependent origination, these laws of causality, that if we know, we can break the cycle. If we don't know, we spin around. So there's this deep understanding of that what fuels a sense of suffering is our not understanding, our ignorance, our unawareness. And then from that, it may give rise to a sense of craving, the sense of looking and trying to find some happiness outside of ourselves. 
kind of like a misconception of things. They begin to believe that I can find happiness outside. So funny, because, you know, we hear in our Western world, there's a lot of mythology about getting to utopia. Yeah? Getting to utopia. It actually is very interesting. In Greek, the word utopia means nowhere. (laughs) That's its definition, nowhere. But if we play with the word nowhere and separate the words, separate them a little bit differently, it also spells now, here. But I want to just honor for all of us as human beings our desires to want to be happy, to feel good. Actually, the word for desire in Latin is desidere, and its root is desidious, like from the stars, what the stars will bring. But if we continue to live with the belief that somehow something outside of me makes me whole, we may not be able to potentially find what we're searching for. And this misunderstanding tricks us because these types of cravings that make us feel good do make us feel good. So we want more. There are things that make us feel good and perhaps this is the root of our addiction because it feels so good we want more and more. And I want to also just say that I don't want to say that in Buddhist psychology that we are considering uh, craving to be morally wrong. It's not a sin. But we simply explained it's a cause of suffering. And why? Because the desire or the cravings that keep you wanting, keep you wanting what you can't have. Once looked up in the dictionary of the words desire and craving and it's it's this yearning this craving this hungering for this thirsting for anybody experienced that of that <laughs> yeah there's a lot there so due to these misconceptions and belief the belief that perhaps we find these things outside of us this gives rise to great unease so the Buddha began to, dis- he began to discover that the causes of suffering was this unawareness and craving that drove the craving. The unawareness drove the craving. And there's a beautiful um, translation of the noble truth of craving from Ajahn Amaro. And he says that the noble truth of the cause of suffering is craving, and it's craving that is compelling and intoxicating. And it causes us to be born into things again and again, ever-seeking delight now here and now there, namely the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. Has anybody ever felt a craving that is compelling and intoxicating? I certainly have. Yeah. You know, to be honest, when I look at my cravings, um, I love... Losing myself into pleasure. I would just like to live there forever. <laughs> Losing myself into pleasure. It's like, ugh. But, but it doesn't lie. I, I can't, no matter how much I try, I try, I can't get it. 
So that sensual delight, to feel good, to lose ourselves in it, feels so good, I want more. That's its operative. Eros, libidinal, desire, instinctual, to feel good. So many different ways that we can feel good. Of course, there's sex and food and sensual delights of all kinds. But they don't last. I remember one time eating my favorite um, vegan ice cream and (laughs) I was like lost into pleasure. It was just, there's an example of just losing myself into pleasure and it was just so wonderful. I was just so happy. Everything was just wonderful and then all of a sudden I noticed there was one bite left. And then I thought to myself, what am I going to do in my life? <laughs> I'm going to have to get another bowl. I saw that one. I didn't get it. But it's like that moment of just so much lost into pleasure and then realizing it's gone. And then the yearning to want something again. Or you watch your favorite television show and the season ends and you've got to wait till September. What are you going to do with your life now? <laughs> Shopping. Actually, one of our colleagues, uh, Judd Brewer, he's a neuroscientist. He wrote a book called The Craving Mind, and it's looking at like what chemicals go in place when you click Amazon one click, you own it, you buy it. What happens when you get a text? What happens when you get an email? It's setting off little happy juices inside us that we want more. It's never enough. You know, Amazon, like, you know, like, I don't work for Amazon, but like that one click. Boom, you got it. It feels good. But how long does it last before you start combing again? What else am I going to buy? Kabir says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and I keep on spinning out. I gave up sewing clothes and now I wear a robe and then one day I noticed the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. So then I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed and now I'm proud of myself. This poem goes on for many years. That craving, but it's so seductive because it does feel good and I want to honor our humanness, our longing to be happy. And I think what the Buddha was pointing is, where is it to be found? Is it inside? Is it outside? The second is the the craving to be someone, narcissism, the superego, born out of a sense of insecurity and that I am dependent upon you and your approval, your validation, your acknowledgement that I am okay. This is a big one. And it also, to say very honestly, it's very important that we are seen and honored. But perhaps if we've lost that sense of sovereignty and we've been shamed and made to feel so small, and we have this belief that the only way that we can feel whole again is through someone outside of us approving us, then we are dependent upon someone outside of us. 
spent some time in South Africa and they have a very beautiful phrase called Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is when two people come together, there's this knowing of like, I see you to one person and then person that's being seen, I am here. So the importance of that being seen and being connected is so important. But if we begin to have that sense of looking outside of ourselves for approval, it can be very painful. And how much of the time have we left ourselves for another? This wanting to be liked, it's big. We, I would trust many of us want to be liked, and that's human and good. And you know, if we're lucky enough to have parents that help support our sovereignty so that we could begin to grow in confidence, we begin to have that inner knowing of our own beautiful nature. But if we were smashed and made to feel small, I have a friend of mine that grew up in a very difficult situation. His, her mother, his mother took her life. Her father, his father was a retired military commander and there was four boys. They were very tall, kind of awkward, particularly my friend was very awkward in the small apartment. And so his father used to call him a name. You probably heard of the children's story, King Midas, everything you touch turns to gold. Well, his name was King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. You can feel that right in the belly. Imagine just being brought up in that way. Or I was working with a woman in Denmark last year, and she was saying that, you know, my mother said to me, ever since I can ever remember, I wish I didn't have you. These are very powerful messages that we get in our lives that feed the sense of shame, insecurity. I used to have an uncle. He thought it was funny, but I was like a small kid, and I'd go over to my grandma's house, and my grandma knew I liked peanuts, and so she'd have bowls of peanuts and different tables, and I'd say hi to everybody, but I'd kind of beeline over to the peanuts and get some peanuts. And my uncle began to watch this, and um, he thought it was kind of funny, and... All of a sudden, I began to hear, here comes the claw, here comes the claw. And like, wait, I don't have a claw, I got fingers. But somehow, how he said it, I felt so shamed. I decided I was not going to go get peanuts anymore. It was a shaming thing. How many of us inadvertently, in our development, when we're still developing our sense of self, we begin to get diminished. We lose, we lose our sovereignty. And when you think about it, when we're infants, we are fully sovereign. We don't really care what other people think. Yes, we're dependent on, you know, Christina was talking about like, you know, if we're being loved and we get food and so forth, but often babies really don't care about approval. I could have a baby sitting right here next to me and if it decided to have a big bowel movement right now, it'll just do it. And it, it don't really care whether you're there or not. If it wants to fart, burp, throw up, yell, laugh. Baby's just being baby because that's what baby does. And there's a, there's a certain type of beauty of their sovereignty. They're so themselves. And in time, in our development, in this development of our ego, our sense of self, we begin to lose that sense of self, that sense of sovereignty. And perhaps we begin to identify, it's, perhaps it's the money that I have in the bank, or what my body looks like, or the job I have, or the education I did, or what I did, that somehow that I win 
to get friends. I remember growing up, I was not that popular of a kid, and, and I saw that the cool kids all got low grades, so I decided to get low grades just so that I could be accepted. Still didn't work. <laughs> but that craving, that desire to be loved, to be seen, is very human. And if we don't know that for ourselves, what happens? That sense of being liked is important. And again, where do we find that? It's so funny. I use Facebook from time to time, and I, um, I think I wrote something, and you know how they check off like. Anybody use Facebook, or am I the only one? <laughs> I don't work for Facebook. But, um, okay, I know you do. Some of you. And anyways, so I was getting these likes about something, and I noticed one time it was at 199. And I realized, I saw in my mind, I wanted 200. <laughs> what the hell's 200 going to do? Like, is that going to be finally it? That then I can finally be okay with myself? And of course it wasn't enough, because then I wanted 201. Actually, I told the story once in a meditation retreat, actually a few times, and so some people have written me notes. This is a forever like to Bob. So I got a forever like, but that wasn't enough because I needed two. So will you believe it? I got, a, I got another like. It says card number two, like, and then I even got a third infinite like. But you know what? Even an infinite like is not enough because I want two infinite likes. <laughs> Mary Grace says, maybe I'll get one tonight if I'm lucky. I don't need it. But, um, but you know, it's just like we can see that in ourselves. But again, it's that yearning for into me I see. To, the yearning for happiness, that's human. And I want to validate that. Where is it to be found? I think this is what the Buddha was really looking at. So sometimes we leave ourselves and we try to be someone else, but you know what? Everyone else is actually taken and the only one that is not taken is ourselves. I'll just say that the third um, craving is this craving to feel nothing, thanatos. Annihilation, the death instinct. It's rooted in the belief that if I, with my pain, that if I'm just not here, I don't have to feel it. Numbing, disassociation, discounting, losing ourselves in drugs, alcohol, television, the internet, the radio. I mean, there's so many different ways. Lost in crossword puzzles, books. There's thousands of ways that we've developed to not be here. I had an experience with a family member that was ill that turned out to be not as grave as we had initially thought. And I remember during that time that I just wanted to sleep all the time. It was too painful to be here. And then like, ah, this is this craving to feel nothing. How that we can go to that place so we just don't have to feel what's here. So this quest for happiness, is it to be found inside or to be found outside? And I think to me, this is some of the most powerful realizations of the Buddha. And to begin to have see that this sense of self that is made of these stories developed early in life and to begin to see through them, begin to 
see that these stories that I've identified with, and there's good reasons why we have identified with the stories that we have, because we experience them, but that becomes the whole reality, and we don't see anything else but those stories, and repeat them again to ourselves again and again. But through this practice of awareness, we can begin to see these stories. And to me, this is the most profound teaching of the Dharma, is beginning to see through these stories that have enslaved us. And it begins with this practice of awareness that we can begin to see what we're telling ourselves. I just want to read one other thing that points to this. This is from Margaret Weekly. She says, I notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world that we've created and we self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference, and can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. So when we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference, and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance of changing. This is the the gift of the Dharma, this possibility that we can begin to acknowledge these personal stories, of course, that are part of our identity or personality, but to begin to see that that's not the whole story. To begin to experience more freedom than perhaps we could ever imagine. You know, we, we came from a place of being connected. We grew up in a womb. We were connected with mother. We were fed. We were taken care of. And then eventually something happened and we got too big. And we had to get out. And then that powerful moment in our lives when the cord was cut. And that's the beginning of that separation, the cutting of that cord. So perhaps these teachings are leading back to finding our way back home. And is it inside or is it outside? Our journey back home to our hearts. And so let's just end with a little short uh, meditation from my teacher, Tampulucero. And he said that this was a very wonderful practice to use when you're dying, and also a wonderful practice to experience what it's like 
to have freedom. Sometimes we think of enlightenment as some far-off place or many lives from now, but we also can experience moments of it. Perhaps with this breath, as we breathe in and breathe out, and as we breathe in and out, may there be in this breath in and this breath out the absence of any types of greed. Grasping. Just to experience it, just for a few moments, and in its place, as the greed or the grasping dissolve, what's in its place gives rise to a sense of contentment and ease. It's one of the tastes of freedom, that in this breath in and breath out, the absence of any wanting or greed and experiencing contentment and ease. And continuing with the breath in and the breath out and the dissolving of any hatred in in its place, giving rise to the open heart, the kind heart, the compassionate heart. Contented and open-hearted as we breathe in and breathe out. Continuing with the breath in and out and this understanding clarity of the causes of suffering and the end of suffering, the ending of greed and hatred the ending of unawareness, the clarity of the mind and heart as we breathe in and breathe out, contentment, open-heartedness, and awareness. A woman, a Zen poet, says, 10,000 flowers in the spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. So feeling in these moments, this best season of these moments, contentment, open-heartedness, and clarity. This is the best season of your life.
And so thank you for your attention. And so we can see in these teachings that the dissolving of shame, dissolving of pain is the penetrating insight of becoming free of the stories that have enslaved us in its wise response is compassion and understanding. So thank you so much and time for some walking practice and come back to the last sit in a little bit when the bell rings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.